Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, and verses 35 to 58, which is printed in full in your bulletin, though we will only be reading a few passages together. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just as seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 48. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my my dear brother, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. If you look above, it says uh, Lent. That's the sign, or at least our series uh, conclusion. This is the concluding sermon for this series, uh, even though we're past Lent, it's post-Easter. But as a church, we'd like to, this is a season, post-Easter, that we like to look at how the gospel shapes our lives practically. That's what we like to do in this portion of the year. Um, but we wanted to emphasize, uh, this week at least, the meaning of Easter one more time. The impact of the resurrection in our lives today, because it is practical. It's very practical. The Apostle Paul says two things, two things today. Uh, that the resurrection does. The resurrection gives us a lasting faith, and the resurrection gives us a lasting hope, which in turn leads us to love genuinely. You know, what the book of 1 Corinthians really is about 
is what it means to become a real community. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous passage on love, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Well, the resurrection gives us that lasting faith. It gives us that lasting hope so that we can love genuinely. First, the resurrection gives us a lasting faith. The Apostle Paul and the early, earliest Christians, they were mainly Jews. They were Orthodox Jews. They wanted nothing to do with Christ. They wanted nothing to do with Christianity. But something happened, and that something transformed their view of the world. It shaped their hope, and it shaped the way they live. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul makes an appeal. In this text, Paul makes an appeal. He makes an argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, he, he basically makes uh, the argument uh, in three forms. Verses 3 to 4, he argues logically. Verses 5 through 8, he argues factually, evidentially. And then verses 12 through 15, he argues personally. So we have, so Paul's making this logical, this evidential, this personal case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to share with you, at least as a first part of this point, this sermon. First, the logical. Verses three to four. The Apostle Paul says, this is of first importance, that Jesus died. He was even buried. So how do you account for the empty tomb? And Paul offers an explanation, his explanation. He says, it's got to be the resurrection. Everything in our faith hangs on the truth, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is of first importance, he says. Now, most people say, say this. Today, they say, look, in ancient times, their worldview allowed for miracles everywhere, but not today. And, and this objection, it's ignorant of uh, the first century thought in which Jesus lived. Back then, there were only two worldviews, two prevailing worldviews. The first was the Greek and Roman worldview. They believed that the body was bad. They believed that the body was weak. And so death is actually the liberation of the soul. So the idea of a bodily resurrection would not have been attractive. It would not have been attractive. It wouldn't have even been considered to be desirable. The second worldview goes like this. The Jews, they believed that the individual resurrection was something that happened at the end of the world. It's not something that could happen here during the course of history. You know, if you think about how this conflicts uh, with us practically, if you, if you ask that, when you ask a first century Jew, why don't you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? An educated Jew back then would respond like this, well, look around. We hear this argument today, look around. There's still death. There's still disease. Injustice continues. You know why? Because the resurrection didn't happen. It can only happen individually at the end of the world. It won't be resolved until then. But how did Christianity spread so far? How did it spread so fast if those were the two prevailing views? So Paul makes this great logical case. On one hand, he makes it very, very clear. The disciples couldn't have been hallucinating because Jesus appeared to them in groups, and you can't hallucinate in groups. Verses 5 through 7, he appeared before the 12, then he appeared before 500, then he appeared before the apostles. These, you know, the most important thing, these people could not have been hallucinating because you can't hallucinate in groups. But most importantly, they couldn't have been deceived and they couldn't have used this to deceive other people because these people didn't want to believe in the resurrection. It didn't fit into their worldview. They were first century Jews. 
Christianity was ruining their livelihood. Christianity was threatening the cultural livelihood of these people in their day. The only way that they could have come to believe is if they were compelled. They saw the evidence. They couldn't have been lying. They couldn't have used this, the resurrection, to deceive other people. A lot of people unknowingly would have been willing to die because of a lie. But how many people will be willing to die knowingly? And they died horrible deaths. In groups, they died. So Paul makes this great logical case for the plausibility of the resurrection. But the second thing he uses, he uses evidence. He uses facts. You know, the epistles, this book, the epistles, they were official public documents that were passed around. In the Roman Empire, in the days of the Roman Empire, we see the birth of the legal system, the Western form of, uh, of, of legal proceedings. And they relied, as a result, heavily on public accounts, on public testimonies. So Paul is putting his career credibility on the line. He's putting the credibility of hundreds of people who say they've seen him on the line when he writes this document. But in verse 5, he says, Jesus appeared before Peter and the disciples. In verse 6, he says, Jesus appeared before 500 people, most of them who are still alive. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you can go verify yourself. Go meet them. The reason why he cites that they're still alive is to, hey, go see them. Talk to them. Hear their public testimony. That's what he's saying. In verse 7, he says, Jesus appeared before James and the apostles. In verse 8, he says, he appeared before me, himself. In other words, Jesus appeared before individual people. He appeared before people in small groups. He appeared before people in large groups. People spoke to him. They ate with him. They touched him. This is not an illusion. That's what he's saying. Logic and facts. Paul builds his case on logic and facts. That's how he got where he got. He says, this isn't wishful thinking. You know, this isn't, oh, gosh, it would be wonderful if Jesus came back from the dead. Or, wow, I'd like to believe that. This is not wishful thinking. He says, I want you to think about this. Use logic. Think about this. You need, to, you need to think. You need to rethink. You need to consider. You need to let the text that's written here argue with you. If you're struggling with the resurrection, you need to let the text argue with you. You need to let reality, you need to facts, to let the facts argue with you. But, Paul says, you need to make the truth personal. He makes a personal case. Verses 8 through 11. We see Paul's own discovery of the gospel, his encounter with Jesus. Who is Paul? Paul was a very well-respected Pharisee. In other words, he was incredibly righteous. According to the law, he was incredibly righteous. And he was incredibly religious. And he was a brilliant man. Time Magazine, one of the, author, one of the articles in Time Magazine written not too long ago actually states that the, Paul, the Apostle Paul is listed as one of the top five most influential figures in world history. That's an incredible distinction. An incredibly brilliant man. Incredibly righteous, religious, but he was, violently, he was violently discontent that the small group, the small number of Jewish converts to Christianity was rising. It became such a huge threat to his sense of righteousness and his livelihood, to his sense of worth. It threatened him so greatly that he was willing to have some of them murdered. He was willing to have some of them murdered. In other words, Paul himself didn't want to believe in the resurrection. This brilliant man himself did not want to believe in the resurrection to the degree that other Christians believed to the point where he wanted to have them killed. 
Christianity was disturbing to him. It was ruining his life. He had a life. Paul had a life. Incredibly respected. Probably wealthy. But he had to believe, he says. And one day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed his life. He encountered him himself. He met him. And what he's saying is this, and this is the point. You don't come to Jesus to be satisfied. You don't come to Jesus to be fulfilled in life. You don't come to Jesus to be healed in life. You don't come to Jesus just for forgiveness. He can do all these things for you. He can. But you have to come to him first because he's real. That's why he makes that argument. You have to let the truth, you have to let let the reality of the resurrection argue with you. You don't believe in the resurrection because it satisfies your deepest needs. You believe in the resurrection because it happened, because it's true, because it's real. Now, ironically, when you commit, when you believe, think about it. Those of you who are close to getting married or you've gotten married, up until the wedding day, you say, is she the one? How can I know? That's the question, right? How do I know for sure? The answer is what? Talk to anybody who's married. You don't know until you commit. When you commit, what happens? Then you're satisfied. Then you're fulfilled. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of that union. Now, some of people say, well, I can't believe. I just can't believe. You know why? Because this is the kind of belief that I want to, the God, kind of God I want to believe in. Well, that kind of God is only a product of your own needs. If you're, think about this, if your own heart, if your own mind can conjure up an image of God that's not written in the Bible, but conjure up your own version of God, then that God will always bow to your desires. That God will always bow to your needs. And a God that's the sum of all of your desires will never challenge you, can never disagree with you, and as a result will never transform you and never truly satisfy you. A God that's the sum of your desires will never make you feel worthy when you fail, nor be able to challenge your lifestyle. Do you get that? Think about that. How can a God, how can that kind of God ever contradict you when you hate yourself, when you feel ugly? Only a Jesus who is true, only a Jesus that you believe in because he rose from the dead, And only a Jesus that you really don't want to believe in, but you have to because of the reality, because of the truth, because of the evidence. Only a Jesus who is is real, who is true, when you hate yourself, can heal you when he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. No God that you make up will ever be able to contradict you when you hate yourself. No God that you ever make up will be able to contradict you when you feel ugly. Only a real God Only a real Jesus can affirm you by saying, I love you. Only a real Jesus, when you're going astray, will say, that is not my will, and will fight you and argue you and bring you back. The Bible says deep inside, we need somebody outside of us who says you're beautiful. I'm crazy about you. We're all looking for that. Everybody here is looking for that. That's why we're so stuck on the love of that one person. We're just pursuing that one person who's going to love us to the end. We just want that one person who's going to love us to the end and says, I'm crazy about you. You're perfect. You're beautiful. You know, I, what is Jesus? Jesus says, you're beautiful. I died for you. No matter what, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, I died for you. I love you to the end. 
The Apostle Paul said, if you read verse 9 and 10 here in this text, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. That's what he says. Now, some of you say, wait a minute. If he really felt that bad about himself, then how could he possibly have had that kind of confidence to say what he says? And, and, and we know this. Only the gospel creates an unbreakable self-image. Only the gospel can do that. Where you're incredibly real about yourself and who you really are on one hand and yet feel joy at the same time. What do I mean by that? You see, you and I, we base our self-image on our performance, on our abilities. We base our, our self-image on our merit, on our record. And when we, we have certain standards, when we feel like we've met those standards, we're, you know, we try to please people. I'm an oldest son, and as an oldest child, I build my entire self-image on my ability to please other people. It's just one of those facts of life of older children. And that, and that way, when you feel like you've lived up to those standards, you feel confident, but you're not very humble. In fact, you're very, very proud. And if you fail, you feel very, very humble, but you're not very, very confident. How is Paul here able to say, I am the least of the apostles, and yet he can speak so confidently as an apostle? He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. In the gospel, we know we are so wicked. We know we, can, we have our capacity to sin and our ability to sin. We know that we are so wicked in the gospel, and yet only Jesus, that Jesus only, it can only be Jesus who could die for us. That's going to make us humble. We can't earn our way back into God's favor. That's going to humble us. And yet Jesus says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. We are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. And that means that on one hand we're sinners, on the other hand we're loved. That makes us humble and confident at the same time. Paul's able to move ahead because of the resurrection. He says, I am not in my sins because of the resurrection. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You know what that means? Think about this. If you've committed a crime, if you've committed a crime, you pay your debt to society. You know, let's say you're sentenced to three years in prison, three years in jail. When you get out, that debt is paid. How do you know that that debt is paid? How do you know? You're out. You're free. They let you out. You know you're free. Jesus Christ died for our sins. How do you know that he actually paid the debt in full? It's because he's free. He's out. That's the marker. The resurrection shows us that we're free. He paid the debt. And as a result, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you can't accept the resurrection, then you have to come up with a historically plausible reason, an alternate explanation for the incredible shift of these hundreds of people who started to believe, who said that they saw him. And you have to explain, alternately explain, a historically plausible explanation for the birth and the rise of the Christian church. Rodney Stark, very, very scholarly account. He wrote The Rise of Christianity. He's a professor, I believe, out of Washington University. He wrote about the birth and the how, how did Christianity Get past the first century. Because if you look at the claims, it would have been impossible for Christianity to have advanced. And yet it did. And not only did it grow, it expanded globally. How did it do that? Let the text challenge you. 
the Holy Spirit's going to come. It's going to generate, regenerate faith in our lives, a lasting faith. Let the text argue with you. Second, the resurrection gives us a lasting hope. Hope for what? I'm going to give us four things that come out of this text. I'm going to run through them very, very quickly. Okay? We're going to run through these four things, and then we're going to catch our breath. We're going to pray, and then we're going to respond in song together. Okay? But these four things are amazing things. And, and it's, we're going to have to go back to the text. You can go back and you can savor it. It's all printed in your bulletin. The resurrection first, verses 35 to 46, gives us, the resurrection gives us the birth of a new core, a new you. Right now, in other words, you're an earthly body. You're a natural body. The Apostle Paul says you are perishable. But someday, you will bear the likeness of Jesus. And that's a glory that will never wither. You will be raised imperishable. You will have a new body and you'll be raised imperishable. You will not just be rebirthed into nothingness. You will actually have a physical body, a perfect body, that will be raised imperishable. Right now it says your life is like Adam's. It's just naturally falling into decay, entropy. Take the sum of all of your qualities right now, your best qualities. They're fading. They're all fading. Take your physical abilities. Take your mental capacities, the best of your capacities, the best of your logical sensibilities, the best of your emotional stability, the best of your looks. They're all falling into decay. We're fighting it every day. That's entropy. And the Apostle Paul is saying this, with the resurrection, The resurrection promises that there is a core you on top of that. Not just the exterior, not just your abilities, not just your capacities, not just your stability, not just your sensibilities. But there is a core you. All of your sins, all of the misunderstandings, a lot of us feel misunderstood, all of your misunderstandings, the sum of all of your fears, the sum of all of your insecurities, all the things that your parents put on you, that you've been trying to get rid of all of your life, but you never are able to, you never will, you feel like? It's why you're always searching for a sense of worth in life, a sense of meaning and purpose in life. Paul says this body has to die. It's got to die out. It's going to decay. It's going to die out. Then, just like a seed that bursts into a flower, verse 37, that's what he says, it's only going to bloom after the body falls. And there's going to be this core you, when it's planted in the resurrection body, It's going to come up, and finally, you're going to get that body that expresses fully, perfectly who you really are. You're going to get newer and newer every day. Here, you get older and older. In the resurrection, in the final, you are going to get newer and newer every day. You're going to get the body that you're meant to have. You're going to to become the true you that you were meant to be. That's, That's what the resurrection promises. Second, the resurrection brings us meaning and suffering. We talked about this a little bit last week. Meaning and suffering. We're going to experience a lot of loss here on earth. But the new heaven and the new earth shows us that one day, everything you've ever lost, you're going to find again. You're going to find again. And it's going to increase your joy. Verses 48 to 49. I'm going to read this. The Apostle Paul writes this. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, 
so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. What does he mean by that? Look at Jesus at the resurrection. Nobody recognized who Jesus was. Mary comes close to Jesus. She's weeping. They've taken my, my Savior away. They've taken my Lord away. Jesus, she thought Jesus was the gardener because he's in, he's in his glorified body. But he calls out to her. And later on, and she recognizes him then. He's got this glorified body. But when he appears before Thomas, Thomas says, unless I touch his scars, unless I see it for myself, unless I touch his scars on his hands and his feet, I will not believe. What does he do? He appears before Thomas and he shows them his scars. This glorified body of Jesus that Mary herself could not recognize still retains the scars. In other words, Jesus' sorrows are still a part of his glory. And Paul says, in that same way, you will bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Your losses will one day be swallowed up in the victory of Christ. Your death, even your physical death, will be subsumed in the victory of Christ. What does that mean? Your suffering matters here on earth. On one hand, it's not punishment. Why? Because in the gospel, the gospel is what? Jesus Christ took the punishment. He took the punishment that we deserved and gave us what he deserved. So if we believe that, we know that our suffering right now is a punishment. You don't have to live in guilt. Oh, I must be suffering. God must be punishing me. That's why I'm suffering. You know that your suffering is not punishment, but rather God is active in your suffering. That's a guarantee. Look at Jesus on the cross completely abandoned by the Father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet God, even as he's abandoning Christ, is active there, using that ultimate suffering, separation from the Father, that's hell, separation from the Father, he uses that to subsume even those sorrows in the victory and the rise of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Do you see that? God wasn't dormant. The Spirit raised Jesus up in three days, and that's what he's doing. In our suffering, in our own suffering, God is raising us up to become more like him in glory. We will bear the likeness of the man from heaven. The resurrection means that you're going to get the life that you wanted one day. You're going to get the body that you wanted one day. You're going to get the family that you wanted. You're going to get the love that you wanted. You're going to get everything that you ever wanted. C.S. Lewis says, you can't want anything wrong in heaven because you have a new core. And if that's the case, even the worst things that you've ever experienced, one day it's going to make your joy even greater. It's going to make your joy even greater one day. The third thing that the resurrection promises comes in verses 50 to 53. The perishable will become imperishable. The resurrection hope of Christians is that they're going to have, they're going to become more of a body. They're, become, they're going to become more physical, not less. You're going to become imperishable. You're going to have a body, but it's going to be an imperishable body. What does that mean? One day you're going to become more physical. You're going to become more substantial. You're going to become more real than you are today. You know, we pursue, think about all the decisions that we make. We make every decision in life because we think every one of those decisions are going to give us more options, more freedom, more joy, increase our potential. That's why we pursue these things, whether it's marriage, buying a home, 
buying a new car, getting another job, accepting a promotion, moving to another city, moving into the city, moving out of the city. Every one of the decisions that we make that are life choices, we do because we believe these things are going to increase our freedom, increase our joy, increase our potential, increase our options. But if you really think about it, if you hang on those things, if you crave and hang on those desires, if you crave and hang on that one person who's going to love you to the end, you're going to suffocate that person and then you're going to ruin that person. You're going to ruin that relationship. That's what's going to happen. So in actuality, the thing that you think is going to make you more of yourself is going to actually make you less of yourself. It's going to make you less of a person. You think it's going to make you more of a human being, it's going to make you less of a human being. The resurrection here says the perishable will become imperishable. That means you really will become more of yourself. Right now, we're deteriorating. Everything that we are, even our relationships, one day will deteriorate to the end because of death. But the resurrection promises that you're not going to deteriorate. You're not going to shrivel as time goes on. You're not going to fade away at the end. Earthly bodies, from the moment that you're born, you have less and less of a body. Your body just starts to deteriorate. Think about anything in this world. You buy a nice, brand-new German-engineered car. Brand-new. The moment you drive that car off the lot, the value of that car depreciates 25%. Do you know that? It's not like the next day you have buyer's remorse, you sell it back, you're going to buy it back at the same price. 25% depreciation. That's what happens. From the moment that you're born, from the moment that you conceive anything, that thing starts to fade away. That's, the way, that's just the way earthly bodies work. But when you receive a spiritual body, you become more whole, more complete, more enabled. You become more in accordance with your design, what God has designed you to be. You're going to become imperishable. You're going to be clothed with immortality. You know what that means? There are things that you can do right now that you cannot do right now. No matter how strong, no matter how fast, no matter how intelligent, no matter how athletic, no matter how just capable you are, because you're perishable and because you're mortal, you just cannot do it. There's just some things that you just won't be able to do. Someday, you'll be able to do more, not less. More, not less. If you're a singer, we have some singers in this congregation, you will be even better. You'll be perfected. And on top of that, there will be notes probably in heaven that, we have not ex- that do not exist, that we have not experienced here on earth. If you are a writer, you will be even better tomorrow. There are words that probably exist that do not exist or that you do not know here to be able to express what you are thinking here because your capacity is limited. If you have a terrible voice, I have a terrible voice, you will have a beautiful voice. If you are a musician, you will be able to produce even better music, perfected music tomorrow. There will be more notes to play with. Uh, One preacher says, in heaven, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, there may be a thousand senses. Right now we have five senses. There may be a thousand senses. If you're blind, you're going to be able to see. You're going to be able to know what the color blue is, is, finally. If you've never walked before in your life, you can walk. You can run. You can dunk a basketball. 
That's an amazing thing. I can, I can walk, I can run, I still can't dunk a basketball. Um, <clears throat> I'm Asian, you can't dunk a basketball. Um, what would it be like to be more physical compared to what you are now is what you are today compared to being a tomato. That's what a preacher says. And not just you, that's the entire world. That's the entire, Revelation 21. You know, I can't, I wish I could go into Revelation 21 more in depth. In Revelation 21, there's this one portion where uh, the, the, the writer, he writes about a vision of what heaven actually looks like. He describes it. And all the things that he describes in heaven actually exist on earth. He says there are 12 gates made of 12 pearls, each gate of a single pearl. There are gates on earth. There are pearls on earth. So we understand the author is trying to take your senses and liven them. But what he's doing is he's magnifying and intensifying what we already know on earth to a degree that we cannot fathom. He says that's heaven. That's heaven. A beautiful picture of heaven. He says there, there are 12 gates made of 12 pearls, each of a single pearl. Now, if you're a logical thinker, you're saying, wow, can you imagine how big that pearl is? Can you imagine the oyster that generated that pearl? Magnified and intensified to a degree that we cannot fathom. That's heaven. That's earth. So Jesus is not just making you imperishable. He's redeeming and restoring the entire world. The entire world. Notice, when he says that you will inherit the kingdom, the word kingdom here is administration. That's the word. It's the word that's used whenever we're talking about justice issues. It means that one day God is going to wipe away everything that's wrong with the world. All evil, all poverty, all injustice, all oppression, That means if you've experienced any of these things here on earth today, one day there will be real justice. Only the resurrection promises true justice. If you don't believe in the resurrection, there is no justice. All your efforts at at working towards justice, it's for naught because it will come to an end. There's nothingness. But only with the resurrection can there be true, real justice in the world. One day all of evil will be wiped away. This should change the way you view your role on earth. This should change the way you view the earth today, our efforts on earth, our labors on earth, our possessions, our material possessions, the material world itself. On one hand, it matters. But on the other hand, it's not the ultimate matter because it's all fading away. And one day it will be renewed and restored to its completion in its fullness of glory in the likeness of Christ. So on one hand, it matters. What you do on earth matters. And on the other hand, it's not the ultimate matter. Lastly, the resurrection promises the death of death. Verses 54 to 57. I'm going to read this part. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We talked about the subsuming of suffering, the subsuming of death in the victory of Christ. Verse 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says here. Where, O death, is your sting? The word sting is, is actually a very specific Greek word 
The word kentron, it means, it means bite. It doesn't just mean bite or sting. It means the bite or the sting of a poison sting. Think about it. When you die of a sting, you're not dying because the sting is painful. The sting is quick. And there is pain there. But you die from the venom that's injected. That's the power. You're dying from the venom of, sting, of the sting. Now, if you could be absolutely sure that there is just, when you die, there's nothingness. When you die, it's just annihilation. When you die, there's extinction. There's, then, then there would be absolutely no reason for why we fear death. But if, you know, because death would have no poison. It's just a sting. And then there's nothingness or annihilation or extinction. Death would have no poison. There's no sting. There'd be no reason for us to grapple with the philosophical problem that still exists today. Ernest Becker, it's actually, there's a quote printed in the, in the front of your bulletin in the reflection quotes. Ernest Becker, he's a Pulitzer Prize award-winning author. And he's, and he's a secular man. He basically wrote the, one of his seminal pieces, if not his most seminal piece of literature, and that is The Denial of Death. And basically says mankind is frantic because they know at the end that death awaits them. And they're in denial. They're frantic because they don't know what happens afterwards. It's a philosophical problem. Nobody is totally sure that after death, there's extinction or nothingness or annihilation. That after death, there's nothingness. You can't prove that there's no judgment after death. And therefore, judgment is possible. Judgment is absolutely plausible. And because we know it's possible, because we know it's plausible, deep inside, we're scared. We're in denial. We're doing whatever we can to convince ourselves that we can live forever. We're trying. That's why we have all the, the youth movement these days, looking younger, trying to, trying to slow down the aging process, all the, the craze of the diets that we see today, all the different types of exercises. It's mankind's frantic way of moving and pushing towards immortality on their own. You ever watch The English Patient? It's an Academy Award-winning movie in the 90s. The English patient. The patient, very quick. The patient's just dying, right? And he's filled with regret. Why is he filled with regret? Because if you look at the past that's expressed throughout the movie, there's no regret. But now he's facing death. And there's nothing but sorrow. And there's nothing but guilt. And there's nothing but regret. Deep inside, everyone. The Bible says this. We all have regrets. We're still trying to deal with them. And, and, you know, we say, oh, I don't believe in the judgment. Really? Are you really sure you don't believe in the judgment? You don't believe that there's anything that happens a- afterwards? Then why are you so anxious about what's going to happen with your life? Why are you so anxious? Why are we so frantic? If you're not really sure what happens after death, that poison, the venom, is in our souls. It's coursing through our souls. It's affecting us. When death stings, it's the poison of the sin that kills you, right? That really kills you in the end. It's the venom. But Paul says, because of the resurrection, there's no more venom. There's no more venom in the sting. You don't have to fear. You don't have to fear death. Our movies today, books today, they're, in fact, movies currently that are labeled Christian that portray death as a friend, that portray death as something that we're supposed to embrace, come to grips with, accept. The Apostle Paul makes it very, very clear. Without the resurrection, death is not your friend. 
Without the resurrection, death is your enemy because it is the end of all things that are good. It is the end of all things that are good that you could ever experience. Death wants to tear away everything that you are and it wants to tear away everything that you have. That venom is coursing through us every day. That's why there's fear, constant fear, a frantic search for meaning, the purpose, the meaning of life. In other words, death is actually killing us before we actually even experience actual death. But the Apostle Paul says here, believe in the resurrection. There's no more sting. There's no more sting. You cannot, the death cannot inject any more pollution into your life. You are cured. The antidote is real. You have taken in the antidote. So when death finally actually takes its physical toll, it can't end you. There's no power anymore. There's no power. The law will condemn. The law has that power because of the sinfulness that we have coursing through our veins. But in the gospel, because of the resurrection, you can say, hurt me, reduce me, wither me, consume me, kill me. You will only renew me. You will only complete me. Behold, I am making all things new. That's the promise of the resurrection. How did this happen? How do we take it in? How does this happen? Look at the cross. When Jesus Christ was arrested, he looks to Peter and he says, put away your sword. Why? Because Peter takes out a sword. Jesus says, I want you to put it away. Why? What does that mean? Jesus is saying this. I have come to bear judgment, not to bring judgment. I have come to drink the cup of God's wrath, not pour it out. I have come to wield the sword, not to bear the sword. I have come to swallow the poison, not administer the poison. Do you get it? Look at Jesus. Look at the kingdom. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Together, that's the gospel. That's the good news. How do you bear the likeness of the man from heaven? You have to look at the cross and behold the man who was born, the man from heaven who was born the likeness of the people of earth. We can bear the likeness of Jesus because Jesus came to bear our likeness, our sinfulness, our sin, our finality, our mortality. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do you trust that our suffering actually has meaning, that what you're enduring right now actually has purpose and meaning is because Jesus endured the ultimate suffering on the cross. He endured complete separation from God. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I have been forsaken, I have been abandoned, not just by my friends, not just by these people who are watching me, but by God, the Father himself, my Father, my source of meaning, my source of joy, the center of my life has abandoned me. Jesus received the death sentence that we deserved so that we could have the life that he deserved. That means that our suffering right now is not in vain and it's not punishment because Jesus received the ultimate punishment, the ultimate, the ultimate uh, punishment, what we deserved. And that means that there's a promise that we will have glory in our scars. There's somebody out there. Jesus Christ, he knows you. He sees you. He understands because he suffered the ultimate suffering. He understands. And that should give us courage. That should give us courage to press on. 
How do you trust that you're going to become imperishable when you look at yourself and you say, wow, I don't like the way I look. I can't, I have so many incapacities and inabilities. Jesus, the imperishable, became perishable. The powerful became weak. That's why he was born in in a manger as a baby. He was born. He experienced birth. Jesus was clothed with humanity. Why? So we could be clothed with immortality. Jesus became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus was mortal. Why? So that we could become imperishable. Even in sickness, even in weakness, we can become imperishable. How do you not fear death? How do you not fear death or judgment or the wrath of God? Why? Because Jesus swallowed the venom of death. He swallowed the venom. He died. And yet that death was swallowed up in the victory of Christ. It was swallowed up in the victory. Even the grave couldn't hold him. How are you going to get rid of the sting? How are you going to get rid of the pain of guilt? How are you going to get rid of, of, of uh, looking at yourself and, and running from God because of the sting, that, the venom that resides, in court, you know, the franticness, the, the anxieties of our lives, the control, the outer controlness of our lives? When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he's saying, I did it. I swallowed it to the end, to the full. And the grave couldn't hold him. The way that we overcome the sting is the resurrection of Christ. When you trust in the resurrection of Jesus, you don't fear anymore because we have power over death. And as a result, if you think about it, if you don't, don't fear death, then why fear losing your job? Why fear not getting married? You know, we tend to be self-absorbed. You know, we don't need to be self-absorbed. We don't need to be self-centered. You know, but, you know, we tend to become self-absorbed. We tend to become very self-centered. Why? When we lack hope, when we lack direction, when we're consumed by our present sufferings, the gospel gives us a lasting faith. It is real. And yet it gives us a lasting hope. It is real. It is real. Death has been swallowed up in the victory of Christ. The perishable will become imperishable. Our suffering will have meaning and we will bear the likeness of the man in heaven. And that's gonna lead us to a lasting love. First Corinthians is all about the power of the gospel in community, enduring love. And as a result, the church is characterized by compassion and forgiveness and inclusion and empowerment. Why? Because they're more liberal than the rest of the world? Absolutely not. Probably not in those days. You know, even then, very, very conservative. That's the church. Because they're more socially ahead than the rest of the world? Absolutely not. If you read Rodney Stark's Rise of Christianity, they were definitely not, the early church was definitely not socially ahead. They were, they were comprised of widows and orphans and women who had no social standing back then, the marginalized. The earliest church converts were the marginalized in society, the disfranchised. It was the view of the resurrection. It gave them certainty. Their faith was real. Their hope was real. What about you? Is your faith lasting? Is your hope lasting? Is it real? What does it anchor on? Everything hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to resume our sermon series next week. But everything hangs 
All this truth hangs on the resurrection of Christ. Let the text argue with you. Struggle with the text. But when you believe it, it will satisfy you. It will fulfill you. There are times, I mean, I'm a pastor, and I'm telling you, there are times when Christianity does not fulfill me, does not satisfy me. Lots of suffering. But I tell you, when you look at the cross and see the ultimate suffering of Christ, you know you're loved, you know you're accepted, and you know this suffering has meaning, and you know you will bear the likeness of the man in heaven. You know that your incapacities will become imperishable one day. You will become imperishable even though you are perishable today. And you know that death has no sting. And when you trust that, you will have humility because you didn't earn it. It was received by grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And yet, you have tremendous confidence, tremendous courage to live, to give, to serve, to renew. God is using you to restore the kingdom here on earth until that day. Where is your hope? Where is your faith? Is it lasting? Let's pray.